0: Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at EmpowerMissouri.org WOA. Mid-Missouri used to be a bastion for the Democratic Party, especially places like Boone and Howard Counties but the Republicans have made great gains in that region over the years, a fact that Representative Chuck Basie knows very well. The Rocheport Republican joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the GOP shift in his neck of the woods and some of the highlights of the 2019 legislative session. Let's hit the music.
1: is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together.
0: I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. I'm in Jefferson City this afternoon with my special guest today. I'm State Representative Chuck Basie from the 47th house district. That is correct. It's yes, a yes. interestingly drawn house district that includes what four co- includes Boone, Randolph, Howard, and Cooper counties. That's is that correct. correct. Yes, Jason. And and if you could give people the general gist of of the geography of that, that would be my first question. Well, it's
1: it's northwest Boone County including in the northwest uh roughly 20% of Columbia and it, extreme northern Cooper County, eastern third of Howard County, and southeastern Randolph County. So it's it's got a lot of uh, rural component to it, but uh, most of the voters are in Boone County and in the Columbia portion.
0: Have you ever wondered what the appellate judges were thinking when they drew the district? Because it is a very strangely drawn district. It, it is, but
1: um, you know, it is what it is, and um, it, but it it is a pleasure serving in this capacity, and I've got to know an awful lot of people, some uh, that like me and some that don't like me. But I I think it's important to represent everybody. That's what I'm there for. And so I try to listen to people that don't agree with me politically and and just do the best I can.
0: We'll get into the political dynamics of Mid-Missouri in a moment. But before we do, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you grew up. How you got involved in mid-Missouri um, in politics? Anything you would like the listeners to know about Chuck Basie?
1: Well, I, I it was I, I grew up in the St. Louis area, went to high school, joined the military, and when I got out of the military, I was hired by the FAA right after the uh, controller strike when Ronald Reagan uh, fired the controllers, and so I, I ended up in uh, Kansas City for a couple of years uh, working for the FAA, and then I was transferred to Columbia, and uh, that's where I spent the bulk of my career at the Columbia Airport. So. Um, uh, it's, it, as I mentioned earlier, it was a, it's a long story, but I, I was eligible for early retirement. I was looking for something else to do, and I ran into a gentleman that was trying to find a candidate to run against uh, the incumbent at that time, and I uh, decided to go ahead and retire and uh, run for office, and that's kind of how I got into
0: the political side of it. The person you were referring to is State Representative, former State Representative John Wright, who had won in 2012 in a very, I'm going to describe it as a wacky contest because it wasn't wacky for him. He was unopposed or, or he was not unopposed in the primary. It was actually a very bitter primary between him and Nancy Co- Copen- Copenhaver, Co- Copenhaver the, yeah. former state rep. But the problem for the Republicans was somebody ran in the primary, dropped out. And they had to go through like two or three candidates before they got Mitch Richards in there. Yeah, that's correct. And, and it was still a pretty close race, even though Wright spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money to eventually win that race.
1: Right. Yeah, it was very competitive. It's a it's a district that's essentially split right down the middle, uh, you know, politically. And um, so I, I remember I, I met R- uh, Mitch Richards a few times and again, I think he it, it kind of hurt him when he got in late, but uh, that's what happened. And, and, uh, you know, it's his history there.
0: So in 2014, I think it was a little bit easier. I think you did have a primary if I'm not mistaken. Yes,
1: I did. It was a, a lady that I know very well. She, uh, got in it for uh, reasons, not because she didn't like me, but she felt compelled, uh, to, to get in and, um, so, uh, but you know, it was not contentious at all. We we still get along. We're still friends, and probably always will be.
0: So, you know. the race between you and Representative Wright had to be one of the most expensive state rep races of 2014. Yeah,
1: it was. It was very expensive. And uh, granted, I I would not be successful at one for help from a lot of other state reps and other officials. Uh, being a novice in politics at the time, I it took a lot of uh, quick learning, and uh, I just worked real hard and. I knocked on a lot of doors, and and uh, so it took a lot of hard work. But being that I was uh, newly retired, I had time to do that, and and uh, it ended up being successful.
0: Do you think that, especially since 2012, that parts of your district have moved more to the Republican side? Because you mentioned before we press record that your reelection in 2016 was competitive, but your reelection in 2018 was not terribly close. And I have to imagine that was because a lot of the areas that used to be very Democratic, and that includes places like Howard and parts of Boone, have shifted way to the Republican side. Has that what you have found just going door to door as well?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I, I still run into people that uh, still consider themselves to be Democrats. However, they feel that um, that the, the party, especially on the national level, has changed so much that they no longer can support um, you know, what the, the national party stands for, uh, whether that's true or not. That's what I was told by quite a few people. One being my cousin, uh, up in Higby, uh, he was a lifelong Democrat. He told me after my first election, I was the only the second Republican he ever voted for in his, his whole life. And, um, uh, not really crazy about the first one. It was Richard Nixon, but, um, that, that was the other Republican he well, voted can, for. Well,
0: congratulations on that. Yeah. Station. But,
1: um, and I don't know if, uh, being cousins had anything to do with it, but, um, but he, he, I think he votes mainly Republican now because he, he just didn't like some of the things that um, some of the national Democrats were standing for.
0: So let's talk about some of the things that happened uh, in the 2019 session. You are the chairman of the House Veterans Committee, and you're correct. also the vice chairman of the Elementary and Secondary Committee. That is correct. So a lot of the topics we're going to talk about are going to fall within those two policy realms. So let's talk about the, the Veterans Committee first. You were mentioning before we... Uh, Pressed to record that there was a pretty multifaceted bill that dealt with military education that ended up being signed by Governor Mike Parson earlier this week. I want you to talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. The, the bill that I was able to attach onto that was uh, kind of a, um, an addition to something that passed four years ago, and it's uh, the Returning Heroes Act. Uh, the, the, re- the original bill was for undergraduate education, and uh, I added a uh, new component to that that will allow combat veterans to receive a discount of tuition at Missouri Public Universities. And uh, I think that's very, very important to try and help our veterans, especially our combat veterans, because um, they have been through some horrific things and um, a lot of things going on there, but uh, mental health issues and, and some, you know, a lot of other things, multiple deployments Takes a toll on them, and I think anything we can do to help them uh, readjust back to a uh, somewhat normal lifestyle, I think we should try to do.
0: Did were they not able to get discounted tuition before this bill? Well,
1: they have the GI Bill, but um, uh, that you know, I used mine when I, I got out of the military, but it it uh, doesn't cover everything, and uh, unlike the one I was uh, had access to uh, today's GI Bill, you can transfer that to your family members, either your your spouse or your children. So, um, I thought that if we could give these vets a little bit of a help, uh, with some tuition, uh, tuition assistance, they might be able to transfer that, their, uh, remaining benefits to one of their kids or maybe even their wife.
0: Yeah. I I imagine that wasn't terribly controversial. No,
1: we had some pushback from higher education, but we, we worked real hard with them and we, we made some amendments to the bill and uh, everybody ended up uh, in support of the bill at the end. So.
0: The other bill that has more to do with healthcare that you were sponsoring deals with expanding the autism mandate to include uh, other developmental disabilities. Now, before we start talking about this topic, as I did with Senator Hoskins when we talked about it, um, for full disclosure, one of my child, what my one of my one of my children does have a developmental disability that does uh, include. Uh, treatment that I get through insurance. So this is not something that I am unaffected by, but it's an important enough issue that I feel like I shouldn't just not talk about it because it affects me. In fact, I don't feel like a lot of people talk about disability policy just because it's kind of under the radar. Tell me a little bit about what you were trying to do here and what the problem was that you were trying to solve.
1: Well, I I don't have anybody in my family with a developmental disability to to begin with, but I, I met this woman that had a son it was her middle son. He he is uh, diagnosed with a what they call a genetic disorder. That there's really no uh, no name for what this young man has uh, afflicted with. But the, the more I learned from this woman, um, her frustrations with her insurance coverage. They have very good insurance. Her husband works for Columbia College, but uh, like many insurance plans, are uh, have a limit on the number of therapies you can have in a, in a year. So in her case, and in my case with my insurance, it's 20. And it doesn't matter what kind of therapy it is. It it all goes into the same bucket of 20. So in in their instance, they would be uh, out of pocket uh, very early in the year. And um, so, uh, and it's very expensive. This young man needs uh, two to three different types of therapies a week. And uh, so I thought, you know, this is something that... uh, Really, we should look at and try to try to fix. So it was a it was a long process. We had a lot of opposition at the beginning because of uh, fear of uh, escalating costs. I was just
0: going to say, I remember when the autism insurance mandate was going to the legislature. It took a long time, right? Because I would think that insurance companies were not thrilled about being required to cover some of these treatments, which are probably very expensive, and they. I could just imagine that was a, that would be a natural opposition there.
1: Right, that was part of our problem. We had we had a hard time defining the number of individuals this was going to affect. So um, what what we did was we found out that the numbers that the insurance companies were being uh, given were included people that were not uh, really in this population. They were including uh, kids with learning disabilities, kids in Medicaid population, and then. Uh, uh, things like that. So once we eliminated those numbers out, we had some help from some uh, different types of groups. Uh, the Missouri De- Developmental Disabilities Council was was very very helpful, uh, as was the Department of Education in Missouri. So we we once we got the the numbers down, the insurance uh, companies kind of uh, softened their uh, opposition to it, and at the end we ended up having zero opposition to the bill. So it was it was that was very very huge. And then another thing that really helped. We have some very prominent uh, statewide officials that have some children with uh, uh, you know, developmental disabilities. And uh, so the, I think the insurance lobby knew this was not going to go away. And I, I'm going to keep pushing it or was going to push it until I was no longer in office. I just think it's the right thing to do because um, there is no doubt, no dispute that once a, a, a child gets into a consistent therapy program, the better off they are in the long run. And um, so that I just felt very strongly that we should try to help these kids uh, get into a consistent therapy program. And if I could just say real quick, this this young man that I uh, got to meet through uh, his mother, um, Nathan, when I first met him, he could only speak uh, one, maybe two words. He could say yes, no, hi, thank you, that kind of thing. Now he's speaking after he's been in a, a, a good, consistent speech therapy program. Now he can speak in sentences. He's still a little hard to understand, but he—you can see that that therapy is working for this this uh, this young fellow. So, I uh, I had a lot of help from a lot of people, and a lot of my colleagues were very helpful getting this passed as well.
0: The thing that I talked with Senator Hoskins about is there's no question that having mandated insurance like this is very helpful for people whether you're lower income, middle income, whatever, because these insurance, these treatments are very expensive. And without insurance, my son would be, I'd be paying tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket, for example.
1: Well, yeah, if you didn't qualify for Medicaid, absolutely. It's very expensive. And a lot of people, um, if they can't afford the therapies, they just don't, they just just don't do it. And uh, they just try to do without and And that that doesn't help uh, the situation at all.
0: But the question I would have is, if you do mandate some treatments and there aren't enough providers to provide that treatment, is the mandated coverage actually going to be that helpful to ordinary people?
1: Well, we'll have to wait and see. I hope that that is not the case, but... uh... Uh, A lot of the groups that represent the uh, different types of therapists, they were on board with this this legislation from the the beginning. So hopefully this might maybe create some jobs or some opportunities for for people to move into some smaller rural areas if they have a client
0: base that they can help out. That was going to be my next question. As someone who represents a primarily rural area, have you found that having not only developmental therapists privately, but also special education teachers in some of the more rural schools, is it hard to attract people, especially when they may go to St. Louis or Kansas City where there are wealthier school districts so there's more people to treat? Because from talking with other legislators about this, I often talk about the, the funding disparity in special education between St. Louis and St. Louis County, but I've also found that in rural parts of Missouri, it's also a huge problem attracting personnel to help people with physical and de- de- developmental
1: disabilities. Well, yeah, that's absolutely a, a definitely an issue. And a matter of fact, many of these families that have been behind me on this bill that have children that have a, a disability moved to Columbia for that very reason because they couldn't get the services in the smaller communities or where they were living before they moved to Columbia. So that is a, an issue, but I don't know what we can do about it. But we just need to keep working and, and try and do the best we can for For these kids that, uh, you know, through no fault of their own, they were just happened to be born with a a disability. But I know one thing, a lot of these kids, uh, all of them, uh, there's not a thing wrong with their heart. They all just want to live and be happy. And uh, uh, I'm I'm very thankful that the governor is going to sign this bill.
0: Is there anything that you think the legislature can do to maybe assist school districts uh, with funding to hire special education teachers or maybe have like a statewide solution that would go to maybe urban schools that are underperforming, but also rural schools that just don't have the tax base to hire special education teachers. And the reason I mention as a state solution is I'm kind of putting myself in the shoes of like a special education teacher. You spend a lot of money and you go through a lot of training in order to deal with kids with autism or epilepsy or cerebral palsy. And my guess would be that they may be more attracted to going to schools that would pay them more money, first of all, but also in a rural area with fewer kids, especially when they can't be paid as much money as a, as a suburban school in St. Louis or Kansas City. I just I just may like seem like you need the state to step in to fill in the gap where the local areas can't do that. Has that ever been something that's been discussed by legislators? Is it just a local sort of thing. That, yeah, I think that it's for... a. It might
1: be more of a local thing, but it's certainly something that I would be more than happy to look at. Um, I, I think that anything we can do to help uh, people in general is a good thing. But, but this is this is something that's kind of uh, become near and dear to me now that I've gotten to know a lot of these families and uh, these kids. Um, it, it just uh, it. It's it's become very important to me. I want to I want to do more, and I intend on working with these uh, these mothers. We're going to look at another issue that uh, we're going to try and tackle next session. So um, a lot of work to be done, and I'm happy to be one to, to try and help them.
0: Another issue that you sponsored, although somebody else carried it across the finish line, was pushing the start of school back. I think a week or something like that. Yeah,
1: it's um, the the original bill was. Uh, no more than ten days before the first Monday in September, and it was amended to fourteen days. And what the amendment did, it was actually an amendment offered by a, a former superintendent that represents the Sedalia area where the state fair is. The fourteen day, the way it works out is, uh, school will never never be able to start uh, until the state fair is, is finished. So I, I thought it was a good compromise and. Um, I had a lot of parents and, and, and teachers in my district, especially in the rural districts, that were frustrated that school starts earlier and earlier every year, and um, so it's something that I thought that I would give a shot. And the other reason I got behind it is uh, one of our my former colleagues, Jay Houghton, had a a passion behind this issue because his son was involved in high school sports and showing animals at the state fair, and it was a it was a big hardship on him. Mm-hmm. So I, I Jay, Jay couldn't get it through, and I thought I'd just take up that uh, on Jay's behalf and try and get it done. So
0: It did end up passing. Well, you, you weren't the main handler of it, but since you did sponsor some similar element of it, were you surprised it actually passed? Because I'm reading a lot of articles now of school personnel not being super happy about this, but I'm sure that, as you mentioned, there are some parents with obligations in the summer that you mentioned that probably are happy about it. Like, what's been the reaction that you've heard? Well, yeah,
1: some of the school administrators and school board people are not happy with the the legislation, but being that it was a big hit on, uh, you know, school starting earlier and earlier, it was very problematic for our tourism uh, industry, especially the the ones around the lake area and the the floating, the river uh, canoe people. And uh, again, the state fair, it was, uh, their, their attendance has been declining over the years. And and uh, with kids having to be back home and start school earlier, it's, it's hard for the, the kids to, uh, you know, show their animals and their hard work and things
0: like that. So I, I just thought it was a good bill and I'm happy to be part of it. That was going to be my next question, because when I'm reading a lot of the coverage of this, the people that are most happy about it are Lake of the Ozarks, the Branson area, places that have a lot of tourism, places where a lot of Missourians go for the summer. And I guess derisively, some of the opponents of this are saying, well, this is just meant as a sop to cities with a lot of tourism at the expense of flexibility of school districts. So how would you respond to that, I guess, criticism of this?
1: Well, again, we made a a pretty significant compromise on the, uh, the language of the bill. We changed it from 10 to 14 days. And um, you know, that schools still can, in some instances, start uh, towards the mid part of August. Um, but, uh, you know, I understand the local control concept of that. That's what I heard a lot from especially the school board people. But but if you look at the totality of it uh, from the whole state perspective and the hit on the state fair and agriculture and agricultural education and also the, uh, the tourism industry, I, I thought it was a Something we should address, because uh, the example I used a lot was the Columbia School District. Uh, Fifteen years ago, they started on the 28th August. This year, they're starting on the 14th, and it just seems like every every year it got a day or two early or earlier. Um, so um, I, I know a lot of people that are very happy with uh, the, the change.
0: Did you hear from any parents who are now like, whoa, school's starting a week later and day camp has... Ended before. Then now I have to be with my kids for another week. Uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm horrified by this. Have you heard anything about that? Or no, I have not. Okay,
1: I absolutely have not. We'll
0: be back after this short break with Representative Chuck Basie. And we're back with Representative Chuck Basie. Another issue I wanted to talk about was something that I was was widely seen as the one of the marquee accomplishments of the 2019 session. And that is uh, the bonding plan for bridges. And there ended up being a lot of legislative haggling over this, and the compromise that came out of some some filibustering and negotiation in the Senate was that the bonding plan was kind of predicated on getting a federal grant, primarily for the Roachport Bridge, which is in your district. So this became kind of, and if this ends up, if they, I guess they ends up getting the federal funds, then it would be a pretty wide like a statewide impact of this, but it seems like because there's so much pressure to get this grant, it seems like your district is ground zero to make sure that this this statewide plan happens. So talk to me a little bit about how you feel about how the bonding plan shook out, and why you think replacing the Roachport bridge is so important, and also just explaining maybe some of the deficiencies with that
1: well sure the 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 bridge itself is right in my district but it affects it affects all of mid-missouri actually the whole state because it uh it would be a i-70 uh type problem so it uh it would affect columbia heavily and then uh, also the the surrounding communities were very very concerned about uh, the traffic being deserted or diverted off of uh, i-70 and for example it'd go right from midway to through Boonville, and the people in Boonville were just scared to death that uh, they'd have all this massive traffic coming through and clogging up their business district. And so it would be a, uh, it'd be a significant hit on mid-Missouri just from that regard. But, but the difference between replacing the bridge and rehabbing the bridge is huge. So if, if they chose, if, if we didn't have this plan that passed, and they rehab the bridge. We'd be re- talking about this again in ten years, so this, the problem would not go away. And um, uh, so th- the replacement of the bridge will not affect the traffic flow until they do what they call the tie-in. So when the bridge is complete and they actually move the lanes over onto the new new bridge, that was uh, told. That, that's what I was told by MoDOT. So. I, I think this is the right thing. If we get that federal grant, they're going to replace the bridge and it won't be a big hit on uh, traffic flow and delays through mid Missouri and all
0: that. Uh, so
1: I, am very hopeful. I, I'm, Matter of fact, I'm very confident we're going to get the federal grants and
0: get this done. Do you know how much money it's going to cost to replace the bridge and how much of that would have to be federal grant money?
1: I, I don't know about the federal grant part, but I've been told it was 260 to $280 million to, to totally replace the bridge.
0: Yeah. And again, since this is now connected, well, let me rephrase that. How did you feel about the the federal grant being connected for the rest of the bonding plan to become active because that was kind of a compromise to the quote unquote conservative caucus in the Senate but it it does seem like that's pretty beneficial to mid Missouri uh not only legislators but mid Missouri residents in general like how did that end up coming about and were were you involved with it with senator Rowden involved with it? Or was that something that the conservative caucus brought up specifically? Well, I,
1: I was not involved directly in it, but uh, I'm pretty sure Caleb Rowden, Senator Rowden had uh, a lot to, to do with the negotiations. But, um, you know, there's there's something that is indisputable. And if, if they had to rehab the bridge uh, in 10 years from now, we'd be having the same conversation, the same argument. And the cost of the bridge 10 years from now would be a lot more than it is uh, now and next year. So I think the the right thing to do is, uh, you know, I don't like borrowing money either, but um, we need to get this replaced. We've got a lot of in- infrastructure problems in Missouri, not just with the Rochefort Bridge, but bridges all over the state. So I think the thing to do is to uh, borrow the money and let's get all this done and uh, we can figure out a way on uh, how to pay for it going forward.
0: Do you, th- okay, so the reason that this bonding plan happened was because the gas tax ended up failing statewide. Um, and I think that Governor Parson, who had been a big proponent of that, really had no other option but to do something like this. Absolutely. Because if he would have come back and said, let's put another gas tax on the ballot, well, it probably would have failed by even more because voters would be like, why are you giving us this again? That's the whole will of the people thing that I'm sure you've heard from the other side of the aisle. Yeah. But it, it's still pretty evident that Missouri's roads need a lot more money than the money that's going to just fix these bridges and these are just mainly going to bridges and not major thoroughfares so what's next after this especially since Missouri voters don't seem super enthused about raising taxes in order to fix transportation infrastructure?
1: Well it's a good question but you know uh, the bridge needs uh The bridge at Rochefort needs to be addressed, and uh, I-70 is just in terrible shape. Um, You know, the the traffic is getting heavier and heavier all the time. So, uh, but it it seems like there's a lot of focus on I-70 all the time, but um, the rural roads, the letter roads, as they're called, uh, a lot of the roads in my district and elsewhere need a lot of attention, too. So we we got a lot of issues in Missouri, but um, there's no easy solution, but we just need to keep trying to do... Uh, something to solve these problems. And, um, you know, it all ties into economic development. If we have good roads and good infrastructure, it's going to draw more people to uh, not only come through Missouri, but possibly stop and live here. And uh, so that's what we all want, I think. we, uh, You know, our farmers rely on good infrastructure to get their, their products to market and uh, so that it all ties into one common thing. It's just for the good of the, the whole society.
0: So we talked about bills that ended up passing in 2019. Were there any major things that you felt didn't pass this session that you're hoping comes come up again in 2020?
1: Well, probably the biggest thing for me was the uh, eminent domain bill, because that um, it it really is not a, a shot at the the company trying to build the power line, but it, it's related to that. But, and explain what the situation
0: is okay. for people that don't know.
1: Well, there's there's been an attempt to uh, move wind, wind energy from um, southwest Kansas to the northeast part of the, the United States, and the original proposal was uh, going to uh, put that power line through uh, north central Missouri, basically from just north of Kansas City uh, up to between um, St. Louis and Hannibal. So they were going to uh, use eminent domain to take uh, private land from from farmers along that route. Um, That kind of fell apart, but a new company has uh, uh, emerged, and they're trying to do the same thing, and the Public Service Commission has actually given them permission to do that. So Representative Hansen filed a bill to uh, basically block a private company from using eminent domain uh, for the purpose of uh, building this high transmission line. So um, it, it's not so much a shot at uh, that company per se, but if, if they're allowed to, if a private company is allowed to do this and to, to build this power line, they can basically come to uh, say my, my brother who has 400 acres in Howard County and say, we're gonna take 50 acres of your property and put in a, a wind farm. So that, that's, that's basically what it is. It's about property rights and, and uh, things of that nature. So um, we, we got that overwhelmingly through the House. It was a bipartisan vote uh, in favor of that bill. Uh, however, we ran out of time, and, and uh, the Senate uh, failed to, to get it through. So
0: that, That's an issue I admittedly mm-hmm. haven't studied a huge amount, so I'm not going to pepper you with hundreds of questions. But one that comes to mind is if you can't use eminent domain, for like utility related things like power even if it's from a renewable energy then what would you be able to use eminent domain for well it seems like it would be a pretty useless useless tool if you can't use it for something as seemingly basic as that how would you respond to that that's a good point and i
1: to be fair um there are private companies that use eminent domain one being amarin uh the big power company on the east side of the state but it's it's much different when they want to run a utility line, uh, say to a new farm or a new business somewhere, and that does happen. But this this company, it was called Envenergy, was going to use um, eminent domain uh, to move this this huge power line, uh, direct current power line across Missouri. And it, this, from what I was told, um, it is this structure was going to be so huge. There's nothing in Missouri that exists that that is this large. So um, it's a little different. Um, originally, Missouri wasn't going to get any benefit from this. So they they kind of uh, reworked her proposal and worked with the Public Utility Alliance. And the last uh, concept was there was going to be a handful of communities, I think 29, 30 uh, communities in Missouri that was going to get very cheap power for a short amount of time. So, but I, again, I, th- I think it comes down to property rights, uh, the overwhelming number of farm landowners that was along this proposed route were against this, and uh, I I, again, uh, I just thought it was a terrible concept to uh, take farmland or, or property from people that did not want this across their land, and uh, yeah, I, I just didn't think it was a thing to do, and a lot of my colleagues agreed with me.
0: So in the last few minutes that we have you on here, I want to talk a little bit about politics. You plan to run for a final term in the House, first of all? I do, yes, sir. What do you think that the environment is going to be for Republicans in 2020? Donald Trump is going to be on the ballot again. A lot of political observers believe that the pretty dramatic shift in rural Missouri toward Republicans has been related to Donald Trump. On the other hand, Boone County is one of the few counties in the state that voted against Donald Trump in 2016, and Democratic voters could be more energized, even in a state that's not in play like Missouri. How do you think it will be for Republicans like you running for office next year in the state legislature with with Trump on the ballot?
1: Well, as long as my district remains pretty much as it is now, it's always going to be competitive. It uh, requires a lot of hard work. So I don't think things are going to change a whole lot for for me per se and even for Senator Rowden. I think he's going to have a tough... uh uh, fight on his hand, depending on what opponent he draws.
0: Have you heard anybody who's thinking of running? No, I have not. Just just rumors. And I've but, heard a uh, lot of rumors, even yeah. though I, I I've been out of the Columbia politics game for almost ten years. But I still get rumors about who's going to run for that, and I'm not going to say them into a microphone because right, the rumors. Yeah. But I would agree with you that that that's the 19th district is what you're talking about, which is Cooper and Boone. Probably going to be pretty competitive. I've always right. said though. If they had paired Boone and Howard together, I think Stephen Weber might have won that race. Just, it, quite just, possible. Just because yeah. Howard is more historically Democratic than Cooper. And even if Rowden had won narrowly, he it would, have probably, it would probably be a 50-50 race this time around. But with Cooper, which is part of your district, Cooper's a very Republican di- uh, county. So that probably not only helps... Senator around him, but it may also be beneficial for you. If, I don't know how much of Cooper's in your district, though. Very, very small amount. Okay, uh, so I guess for, it doesn't help you that much. About 500
1: voters, but uh, it's all rural people. Um, but um, it, it's going to be an interesting uh, race, all the way from the presidential race down to, you know, our local races. So, um, uh, as I said, it, it, it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of focus, and, uh, you know, you just can't take anything, anything for granted because uh, – Even though, you know, I'm just a state rep, people do watch uh, fairly closely. And, uh, you know, you say the wrong thing at the wrong function or forum, you know, it it can cost you.
0: Well, especially in the Columbia media market, where if you sneeze, it's front page news. And I was partially responsible for that when I worked for the Columbia (laughs) Tribune. So I, I, well, I'm not going to apologize to you because you weren't a state rep (laughs) then, but I'll I'll apologize to everyone else. I guess the other thing, too, is when you go down a little bit farther down the ballot, you're going to have a governor's race probably, between the incumbent, Governor Mike Parson, assuming he announces for re-election, which I think is probable. And now with Senator Sifton bowing out of the governor's race, I think it's kind of assumed that State Auditor Galloway is going to enter. She will likely be the nominee. Um, She's from Boone County. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that would affect things. But I guess the caveat is, she really hasn't run in a race to this level before when she ran for auditor last year she ran against a candidate that didn't raise a lot of money and had a lot of negatives associated with her and i think parson's going to be different even though he has a record now that not everyone is happy about so that's my rambly observation of that but how do you think that race is going to shake out and how do you think it'll affect down ballot
1: well it it uh, it it will affect, uh, other races, uh, naturally. But, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about Boone County, uh, at least for my district, uh, it, the very east side of my district in Columbia, I, I do not do well in that area. It's just, uh, it's, it's closer to the university. It's, uh, older neighborhoods. Um, but that doesn't say that, uh, that doesn't mean it's not important, but, um, I, I just try to do the best I can and be as honest as I can with people, and uh, I think uh, Governor Parson is the same way, so it I don't know uh, how that's going to turn out, but I, I think uh, Auditor Galloway is a, a very nice lady. I think she's very sincere, but uh, it'll just come down to uh, the simple fact of uh, what police system uh, people want to side with in, in the governor's race. So. I, uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. But uh, I think you're right, though, Jason. I think it will be between the uh, state auditor and the sitting governor.
0: One last question for you. Are, are you planning to run for a House leadership position if you end up being reelected? I
1: am in the majority leader race. I have not really done a whole lot on that because I've had some, some – uh, Family issues going on, but that's uh, almost behind me, so I'm going to start focusing on that here pretty quick.
0: Do they pick that after the election or before?
1: Right. We're going to elect the the new speaker at our caucus uh, coming up here in a few weeks, but all the other leadership uh, positions will be... will be uh, up for grabs after yeah, the for, election yeah, after and the, the speaker
0: will most almost certainly be a uh, house majority leader rob Vescovo. i think so i've not heard anybody
1: that's uh, emerged to, to take on mr Vescovo. he's he doing may, a pretty good job he
0: may become the i don't remember the last time someone from jefferson county was speaker we'll have to go back uh, we'll have to go look at all those composites and look at the county under all the speakers names some yeah. of which who probably had long beards or handlebar <laughs> mustaches. And uh yeah. Majority Leader Viscova has neither. Well, representative, thank you so much for coming here today. Um, for all of our stories, STLP for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How do people follow you on tr- Twitter? Is it is it like Chuck Basie47 or That's something correct. like that? Yeah, yeah, Chuck Basie47. So until next time, so long.